What is going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of the Boom Boom Performance Podcast. If you are new to this show, this is the one-stop shop for all things coaching. We do not stop at training and nutrition. However, that is my main priority. It's what I'm a coach about. But we do take it a step further. We dive into mindset. We dive into entrepreneurship. We dive into lifestyle. We dive into all things personal development. And that's really what this is about. It's about coaching you through your speakers or coaching you through your headphones so that you can improve your life in all ways, shapes, and forms. If you are new to this show and you want to tune into some of our top episodes, I'm going to link the top four episodes that I have personally recorded inside the description. That is the training FAQ, the nutrition FAQ, nutritional periodization, which is something I'm very known for inside of the coaching space. And then last but not least, my personal journey, which is my story into this whole game of fitness, health, nutrition, coaching, so on and so forth. Guys, I'm so excited for you to be here today. This is a Q&A like most Fridays, and I'm super excited because there is a ton of great questions. In fact, I think I have about 30 questions. I'm going to try to rapid fire these through. Um, I always say that, and as you know, I usually take a little bit longer because I like to go in such depth, and every answer that starts with it depends takes 10 times longer than you would expect. However, I am going to crank out as many of your questions as possible. If you want to get your questions answered, the best place to, to get those questions answered is to go over to Instagram and follow me there. You can DM me. You can wait for the story uh, question box that I upload every week and ask for questions. Or you can purchase one of our eBooks and jump into the private group and you get first dibs at the questions uh, for the podcast every week. You can follow me at Cody.BoomBoom and that's where you can get insight there. You can shoot me a DM. You can also head over to my website. Go to uh, BoomBoomPerformance.com slash podcast and there's actually a, not a lot of people know this so I'm glad I'm saying this. There's actually a little form on the left side in the sidebar where you can ask BoomBoom. Basically, that's what it's titled. It says Ask Boom Boom. I don't talk in third person, I promise. But you can fill in your question there. You just drop your email and your your question. It gets sent directly to my email. A lot of times with those, it's really cool because if it's a very complicated question or it's a very specific question to your situation, sometimes I'll actually email you back and give you more information about it that I don't feel is necessary on the podcast and I want to give you a little bit more of a personal feel because that's what I do. I like to coach. I like to communicate. I like to talk. So feel free to head over there. Drop me a question. I will respond and then I'll even answer it on the show. A um, couple updates for you guys. The winners of the contest from last week, your shirts will be on their way shortly. You could probably expect a couple weeks for shipping, um, but we're getting that sorted out. Those three winners are going to get their Boom Boom Seinfeld shirt. I'm super excited about those. You guys who did not get those, you will see me upload them and pictures of them on my Instagram because I'm super hype about them. Um, and remember, last little update for you guys, on Monday next week, to be exact, it will be, I'm horrible with dates, uh, Monday the 20th. Today is Friday the 17th. Monday the 20th will be day one of the Fat Loss Nutrition Series. We got it all edited up and ready to go. So on Monday for the next eight weeks, two months, you can expect a podcast from me. They're going to be about 20 to 25 minutes long. First thing in the morning, it's going to drop 5 a.m. there and 8 a.m. on Facebook and YouTube as a video format. So if you want to see me go through the process with a whiteboard, you can see me do it there. But I will also put a link to that in the show notes. So if you get to the podcast first, you'll have access to both. But the point is, is 8 a.m. or sorry, 5 a.m. and 8 a.m. technically on Monday morning, the 20th, expect episode one of the fat loss series. This is the fundamental episode. It is where we dive deep into metrics, measurements, and adherence. And this is one of the biggest keys to successful coaching and successfully seeing results, period. So you don't want to miss that, guys, on Monday morning. Make sure you tune into that. Um, So getting into the show, guys, remember, real quick, 
as always, I always mention this because it helps me so much. I appreciate you guys tuning in. And if you appreciate the show and the information I give you, I would really greatly appreciate a five-star rating review over on iTunes because it helps us grow this show, which means I can deliver more value to you every single week. And if you get called to share this exact episode, I would appreciate it even more because that's how we spread the message to more people and help more people around the world. All you need to do is take a screenshot of the show, post it on your Instagram story, and tag myself at Cody.BoomBoom. All right, guys, no more announcements, no more ranting, no more bullshit right to the episode. I promise this is the last little bit. And without any further ado, let's get on to this Q&A. All right, so these first questions we are going to take straight out of the Boom Boom Elite, which is our membership site. Um, Shameless plug right out the gate, guys. If you want the one place where all my training programs go, it gives you smart training advice and you get all your questions answered literally right away because I'm in there every single day talking to people, answering questions, troubleshooting, training, and nutrition. This is the place to go, and it is the cheapest way to get full-on coaching. Um, So inside the Boom Boom Elite yesterday, I don't always do this actually, but yesterday I decided to say, hey guys, recording a podcast tomorrow. What questions do you have for me? So we're going to start there with the first one being Katie Newman, and she wants to know, what would be the best approach to to a training split slash movement slash routine if you... So basically, what do you do in the gym? What's the best approach to training, period? If I want to improve more body weight movements, pull-ups, push-ups, cardio, rather than focusing on improving 1RM and lifting heavy, any advice is appreciated. So I think, and somebody else commented on it, it's a great question. It amazes me that I can deadlift 150% of my body weight, but I can't even do one pull-up. So I think I think it... it there's different types of strength, right? Relative strength is one of them, and that's kind of what we're looking at with body weight training is like your relative strength is your ability to do strength feats and performance with your body weight, with just your body. And I think there is some components that need to be worked on inside of that. But a big piece of that is just skill and neurological um, development. And, and that's strength in general, right? Strength in general is going to be much more neurologically demanding. Um, it's a neurological tax, task. So if you are powerlifting, if you are working to get stronger, if you are a weightlifter, so on and so forth, if you want to be explosive, powerful, or strong, you absolutely need to focus on building your nervous system. Part of that is going through the skill of a movement. So getting strong at the bench press, you have to bench press. It's a skill. So part of this means you have to do more bodyweight movements. So if somebody comes to me and they want to improve their body weight movements, we're going to include body weight movements every single day. Um, for upper body, it's a lot easier because uh, relative to how heavy you are, your upper body can only lift so much, right? So doing push-ups, doing pull-ups, doing rows, um, doing things like that, you're going to get more of a workout than compared to a body weight squat because our, our legs are a lot stronger and, and like the person commented below, they can deadlift 150% of their weight. Can't really do a body weight deadlift and get a lot of act- activation or strength from it. So it's more of an upper body thing, but all you're going to do is you're just going to add more of those things. So if you want to get better at pull-ups, push-ups, and cardio, you need to add more aerobic training. So that could be running. It could be rower. It could be more walking even. Um, it could be even timed intervals. Like if we look at what builds cardiovascular health and ability, it's really just a type of energy system, right? It's the aerobic capacity that you're trying to build. You can do that through weight training as well. So now we're changing the way we lift and we're putting some rest intervals on it. We're timing our sets. We're timing our rest periods, so on and so forth. That's going to build your energy system. That's going to build your aerobic capacity. It's going to work. Um, so there's a lot of ways you can do this. But the biggest thing is going to be you're not going to necessarily need 
I see a lot of people get super into calisthenics, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that if that's how you enjoy to train. I think if you have fun with calisthenics and it's what motivates you to train hard, I think that's exactly what you should do more of. However, I don't think it's necessarily the best approach to go with if you're doing straight bodyweight training 24-7. I think you're much better off having certain days where you have a lot more bodyweight training involved in them. So it's not necessarily like I have today, like all I do is bodyweight stuff. Bodyweight lunges, bodyweight squats, bodyweight bridges, bodyweight pull-ups, that's it. It would be more like I'm adding more movement patterns that are just body weight inside of my training and then even doing like weight vested stuff because at a certain point you get great at push-ups how do you progress them you add load so now you put a plate on your back you put a weight vest on something like that to add accommodating resistance Um, and it's only going to improve your ability to do push-ups so I think the easiest thing to do is really just add more of that and we got to remember too that strength is strength it transfers so and and when I talked about this actually this week's podcast with uh Josh Cuthbert, about uh, sports-specific versus just strength, right? Like, how much do you really need to do sports-specific work, or do you just need to get strong and explosive? Because force production is force production. If you're an athlete that needs to be faster on the basketball court, you could do the same thing as a football player that needs to be faster on the football field. You're creating explosive force production through the floor, period. Um, now, there are nuances that get involved in it, and I'm not a professional athlete trainer, but he agreed with me on that sense quite a bit, and he trains a lot of pro athletes, so it was cool to see that. Uh, but I think the same applies to bodyweight training. If you get really good at heavy squats, you're going to bodyweight squat well. If you can bench and dumbbell bench, I would say dumbbell bench carries over more to a push-up than barbell bench, but if you can press a lot of weight, you're likely going to be able to do a lot of push-ups. Um, so it does transfer over. Strength is strength, and strength is neurological. The skill behind a push-up is a different story. So you definitely need to still do them. But um, I think the best approach to it is just adding more accessory movements that are bodyweight-oriented. So maybe you're doing uh, bodyweight squats and push-ups and pull-ups and things like that as finishers. Um, instead of doing like heavy rows or heavy lat pull-downs, you're just doing more sets of pull-ups. And for people who can't do pull-ups well or can't do a lot of pull-ups – Number one, do a jackknife pull-up or do a banded pull-up. It's a way that you can assist yourself and get more volume done because I see this all the time. People can only do one or two clean push-ups and then they end up swinging and doing a bunch of uh, junk volume inside of their push-ups. They're not truly activating the lats and taking their scapula through a full range of motion in that vertical pulling range. I would rather see them do a pull-down on a machine or a assisted pull-up or a jackknife pull-up so that they can work their scapular mechanics properly build the strength in their lats, and then come back to the pull-up and be able to crank out more volume with higher reps. So sometimes you need that assistance from bands and from jackknife pull-ups where your feet are elevated um, or pull-downs even, machines, in order to improve that body weight movement. Um, but yeah, that's probably my advice. I would just add more accessory work is the main thing. And, and, it, and you can even, I've had people do like on an upper body day, a pull-up as their compound lift, a weighted pull-up for three reps, or for people who can't do a ton of, volume of pull-ups like let's say your max reps is five and you can only do a couple sets of that and then it gets shitty form i have people do like six to eight rounds of two to three reps so they get two to three reps body weight perfect like clean perfect form good i want to ingrain that perfect form that mastery into your ability to do a pull-up so i will have them do six to eight sets of two to three pull-ups 
So just set after set after set. They're just doing perfect reps. And I think that's a really good way to do it too. So there's a lot of things that I could do. Uh, I could add into this, but I think the best thing to do is like have a strength-based program, um, still do weighted programming, and then just add a couple bodyweight movements in for the accessory work and here and there, and, and you'll build that skill. Claudia Ramirez asked, I have an 18-year-old male golfer that I train who wants to gain 10 pounds over the next three months before he heads off to play college golf. He's 5'7 and weighs 128 pounds. What advice would you give? I've asked him to track macros and see where we are starting with starting and start with making sure protein is at least one gram per pound of body weight. Um, yeah, so with this guy, he can definitely gain some weight. Five, seven, 128 pounds. Just for some context, guys, I am five, nine. Um, I'll wear big ass shoes and tell myself I'm five, 10, but I'm five, nine and I am a hundred. This morning I weighed in 171.5 pounds. Um, so I'm only two inches taller than him, but I got 43 pounds on him so he definitely has room to grow um especially if he's an athlete i'm assuming he's pretty lean um 10 pounds in three months is ballsy um if he's a newbie that's doable if he's an advanced lifter i would say that's really ballsy i would say two pounds a month is probably like the most you want to cap out at uh for an advanced lifter and that's being okay gaining like at least a half a pound but more likely a pound of fat per month which is okay like some studies show like if I wouldn't say some studies show. I should say some evidence allows us to believe that adding fat in the process of building muscle may actually allow you to build muscle at a faster rate. So sometimes, even though you are going to have to go back and try to cut that fat off, it can be advantageous um, to let yourself gain a little bit of fat during the process. Uh, But going back to this, 10 pounds in three months, let's say he's a beginner, um, I'll, I'll just create kind of my own scenario here he's a he's a newbie he's young because he's about to go play college golf so he's probably like full of testosterone um even if he is an advanced lifter he's so young because he's going to be what 18 20 max um he's going to be able to gain quick and he has plenty of room to grow i would set his protein at 1.1 grams per pound and the reason i would do that is not because he's going to gain more it's because his bioavailable protein will be closer to that one gram per pound what I find with people like him is we're going to end up cranking his carbs up. And when you crank your carbs up and you already have a, uh, the, even the bare minimum amount of fat, you're going to end up getting, I don't know, 20 to 30, 40 grams of uh, protein from carbs and fats. Like think about it. If you're consuming 350 to 400 grams of carbs as somebody trying to gain weight, you're going to have trace protein from, from everything you eat. So you end up adding, you know, two to three grams here, two to three grams there. Over the course of the day, you end up adding another 20 to 30 grams of protein over the course of the day. Um, On top of that, if you're eating veggies and plants, those have plant-based protein, which is not amino acid rich like we want it for muscle growth. So I'm looking at this from a sense of, and I do this with my clients, if we're on a gaining phase, and let's say we're eating one gram per pound. He's eating, um, in this case, 130 grams of protein, uh, and we add carbs. I'm going to bump up protein like five grams, like just barely. Every every like one to two bumps in carbs, I will add an extra five grams of protein. And the reason I will do that is simply because as we bump up carbs, the non-bioavailable protein, the protein that's not going to really contribute to muscle growth as much, it's not as anabolic, and it's not going to contribute to muscle protein synthesis as much because the amino acid profile is lower. It's not as much leucine. That's going to carry up too. So as that non-essential protein carries up, I'm going to add 
his total intake of protein so he can gain a little bit more. Um, on top of that, like, look, he's 128 pounds. He has a goal of gaining 10 pounds or more. Um, that means you should probably set his protein at his goal weight, bare minimum, because he's going to need to be up there. Um, and 128 pounds isn't really enough to hit that leucine threshold, right? So if like the leucine threshold, I think you need a bare minimum of 20 to 25 grams per meal, but you can go as high as like 40 to 45 grams a meal to get the ultimate muscle protein synthesis spike per meal. Therefore, I would rather have him consuming between 30 and 40 grams of protein per meal, let's say. Well, if he eats three meals a day, plus all of his veggies and carbs and stuff, he's already at that 128 grams of protein, right? So we either have to add more meals or we have to bump up his protein per meal. Either way, his total intake is going to go up. So usually I would probably set his protein at 1.1 grams per pound. Um, I would go with like half his body weight in fats. Um, just because he's young, he can probably handle it. Um, and his testosterone is already high, so you can even go 0.4 grams per pound. But half his body weight is 65 grams of, of fat. So that's that's a pretty average. That's a lower end range. It's not a ton of fat from a, like a flexibility standpoint, uh, but it allows him to have more carbs without gaining body fat. And that's the goal here. So, you know, he's eating 65 grams of fat, let's say 150 grams of protein. And then I'm just going to crank his carbs up. So depending on where he's at right now, we're probably going to go like 14 or 15 times his body weight to start. That's going to be close to like either, like you're kind of dancing on the line of maintenance and surplus at that point. Um, for some people, that's a deficit. So it's, it's very, very individual, and it depends on his total daily energy expenditure. Uh, but being young, young, I'm assuming that'll be maintenance. But if we set him at maintenance, teach him how to track calories, and we allow him to start getting consistent with those numbers, at that point, I'm literally just going to crank up carbs by like 5 to 10% of his calories every two weeks until he's gaining weight. Right, And then when he starts gaining weight, I'm just going to leave it be because we don't want to gain excess weight. We want him to gain half a pound a week. For him, maybe a pound a week. Like you're, you're with your goal for him. It's about, uh, I want to say like three quarters of a pound. Um, but too much gain per week is just going to lead to excess fat, and that's not going to help performance. It's not going to help health. It's not going to help um, him build muscle faster to a degree. Um, so we want to be able to build enough weight where he's gaining mainly muscle, a little, little, little bit of fat, so he's still staying lean uh, because he's going to feel better at that point. So. We, we get him at, let's say, I'm going to get my calculator out again for this, 128 times 15 is starting at 1,900 calories. I don't think that's enough. Um, let's say 16 because that's more of like a higher maintenance, low surplus, just over 2,000 calories. So let's say he's doing 150 protein, 65 fats, and then he gets the rest of his calories from that, that, uh, with that 2,050 total from carbs. High carb, high protein, moderate fat. That's probably going to be the approach with him for a training program because he's golfing. In this scenario, usually if, if somebody came to me with those stats and he was young and he was ready to get after it and gain weight, I would probably put him on a like five or six day bodybuilding program where we can kind of utilize as much volume that he can recover from as possible because at the end of the day, volume is a precursor for growth. Um, it's not the end-all be-all and it's very individual where people lie within that curve. But if he's consuming a ton of food and he's young, Let's utilize it and, and try to go as high volume as we can for him personally. So we'll start with a, the minimum effective volume, see how his body does, and then we'll slowly increase volume until we find his personal sweet spot. Um, and we'll be able to do this because he's young 
and he has high calories, so he's going to be able to recover from it. Um, but because he is golfing, I might actually put him on a four-day, like a upper-lower split. Um, and on the weeks that he's feeling really good, he can go in the gym on a fifth day and just do some like vanity exercises. So some curls, some band pull-aparts, some sit-ups, stuff like that, just to get some extra volume, a little bit of a pump. Um, but for the most part, I'd probably go with a four-day split simply because he uh, because he's golfing. You don't want him going to the golf course feeling sore as shit. Like, you want him feeling good. Um, so that's probably what i do with him. I'd get, definitely make sure he's supplementing with fish oil, creatine, and probably even some, like, highly branched cyclic dextrin during his training sessions just to make sure we're driving nutrients into the muscle while he is training. All right. Let's see what we got here. I hope that answers it really well, Claudia. Let me, uh, let me know if you have further questions. You're in the group, so you can just, just drop me a comment. Pro Burke, how do I know that I'm getting enough sleep? I often read that pro athletes sleep 9 to 10 hours every night, but personally, even if I allocate 10 hours for sleep, my body won't stay asleep this long. I usually wake up after 7 hours of solid, uninterrupted sleep, occasionally after 8. I'm not an athlete. I strength train four times a week. I fall asleep within 15 minutes from going to bed. I dream. I don't wake up in the middle of the night. I wake up to minutes before my alarm sounds off i'm not tired during they did like two with like a little dash i don't know if that means minutes two minutes before my alarm sounds off i'm not tired during the day i have one max two cups of coffee per day is seven hours of sleep enough maybe those athletes are in bed for 10 hours but actually sleep eight yeah there's there's even some studies that show like it's more about time in bed than time actually asleep so if you're in bed for 10 hours that's really positive. If you're in bed for eight hours, that's really positive because when you're in your bed, you're not moving your body and your mind is down regulating. Um, and that's a positive thing. And they do have studies that go off time in bed versus actual sleep. Six is where we're pushing the the bare minimum, but it's probably going to harm you. So we want to get more than six for sure. Seven is kind of that sweet spot. Seven is like realistic. Seven is I have a family. I do like to work out, but I also like to be awake and enjoy my fucking life. Um, and it's still a push for me because I have to get up early and I have to put my kid to bed at night, right? So I think seven hours is okay. And I think that I go back and forth. We're actually working on getting a, sleep, a doctor, a sleep expert on the podcast so we can go into this more in depth. Um, it's hard because a lot of sleep experts will tell you like you need eight. And if you don't, you're going to die. Like it's very, very serious. And the studies do show it's – I mean there's there's a lot of detriments to not getting seven hours of sleep at least. Um, so they recommend eight or more. The problem is, is it's unrealistic. So if trying to get to bed lowers your quality of life, I don't think getting more than seven is worth it. Professional athletes, I do think they're probably in bed for 10, maybe asleep for nine to eight, uh, eight to nine. Uh, but maybe they are asleep for 10. But I think we got to remember too is they – train and practice almost every day so their energy output is way harder way higher they eat more food they need more recovery um, and that is their job so when they are training and they're training for four hours a day that's what they do Um, so not only do they probably have more time to sleep um, they need more sleep and their careers and their financial stability literally depends on it i nobody listening to this podcast unless i have some pro athletes listen to this podcast and if i do dope um hit me up (laughs) but most people listening to this podcast i would venture to say 99 percent of them do not get paid more by sleeping more 
right? If besides the indirect effect of like, oh, I got more sleep, I'm more productive, I got more work done, I made more money. Most of us don't directly get paid more. Those guys literally get paid more if they sleep well and recover well, so they can perform better. Because um, the better they perform, the more money they make. So I think you're golden. I mean, like you just listen to everything off. You're you're sleeping seven hours, which I think is is the sweet spot, right? Six is okay on occasion, too little for the the reoccurring basis. Eight is ideal, and it's probably the golden sweet spot, but it's not always possible. So seven to eight is kind of that that range that we really want to fall in. Um, you're training. I know you're progressing because you're in the group and you talk about it. Um, you don't wake up through the night. You dream. You fall asleep right when you go to bed, which means your stress isn't too high. You're not. You don't have cortisol issues because you're not tired and wired. Um, you're not tired during the day. You don't rely on coffee. I think you're golden. Like, how do you know that you're not getting enough sleep? That that you are getting enough sleep? Like, shit, everything you just listed to me. Um, I think you're golden. Like, I think the biggest thing with sleep is if you notice yourself performing worse and worse, if you're not losing weight, if you have higher anxiety or stress, um, if you lay in bed and you can't fall asleep but you're tired all day, like symptoms and biofeedback markers that are out of whack, those things tell you that you're not sleeping enough. Myra Bell Markle, the notion of reverse dieting until one has reached the maximum amount of calories and carbs one can eat and maintain weight. Some trainers talk about their caloric ceiling while in a build phase and how to set clients up for good cuts. To me, this is just so hard. She'd put like eight O's. <laughs> I would like you to compare this approach to your lean gains approach. What are the benefits, if any, of pushing calories and carbs sky high? I hope my question makes sense. Um, the, the thing is, is like this can be a lean gains approach. Lean gains just means that you're taking a, a conservative enough approach to where you stay lean. So if I take somebody that says, I want to build you to your caloric ceiling, all that means is I'm going to drive calories as high as I possibly can until you start gaining fat, and then I'm going to pull them back. So let's say we drive your carbs all the way up to 400 grams, and we finally start noticing that you're gaining weight a little too fast. We'll pull back down to 375. You drop that couple extra pounds of excess weight, and then you slowly start gaining weight. Golden. We found your ceiling. We found your caloric ceiling and it's basically the highest point we can take your calories and carbs in order for uh, to stimulate gain still while managing fat. So we're not gaining fat as well. The, the thing with lean gains is, is lean gains can do that exact same thing. You're just prioritizing the ability to not gain fat. Lean gains is just a slower, more conservative approach. So we might still find your, your caloric ceiling, we just might take longer to get there. And by in doing so, we manage insulin sensitivity a little bit better. We probably gain less fat in the process. Um, so the benefits, if any, of pushing your calories and carbs sky high is just like a timeline, right? Like if somebody comes to me and they're like, hey, like next year, I want to be a little bit better. And the year after that, I want to be a little bit better. Like I don't compete. I'm not doing photo shoots. I just want to build muscle and, and stay lean. And every once in a while, maybe get leaner by doing a mini cut then there's no point in, in taking this approach of driving carbs and calories super high right out the gate and, and finding your caloric ceiling as fast as possible. These people, I'd rather do a lean gains approach. Let's take our time and just build muscle. Uh, for somebody who's like, hey, I have a show at the end of the year, then I have a six-month break, and then I have another show, um, blah, blah, blah. For those people, we might do that because it's like, hey, like we're going to gain a little bit of fat, but we want to drive your calories up as fast as possible so you can spend a solid three or four months in an actual surplus to gain muscle rather than going the slow approach and taking three months just to get into a surplus and then finally building muscle. 
So the difference is basically where's your time led at, right? Do you have a show? Do you have a date? Do you have something that you need to get done that you need to look a certain way for? If that's the case, we might want to drive calories up, sacrifice a little bit of fat gain, but start getting to the muscle growth faster so you can spend more time in a muscle growth zone and then get onto the cut. Um, So just like anything else, there's balance, right? Everything works. Um, It's more about personal individual goals and just adherence. What are you going to do better with? What's going to mentally be easier on you? All right, so we're going to go to Instagram questions now. We got a lot. Um, we will start with Ben Steele, underscore Ben Steele. Dude, you asked these questions and I answered them already. Go listen to the other podcasts, bro. What is the coolest place you've trained? Gold's Gym in Venice because I got to talk to the guy from the documentary, Bigger, Stronger, Faster, that lived in the van. And when was the most fun you've had in training? I told a really good story about training late at night, headbutting people, singing Whitney Houston, tons of stuff. Go listen to that podcast. It's the last Q&A. <laughs> You'll enjoy it. All right. So K underscore J. 1029. You usually say good cutting macros are 10 to 12 times body weight, so calories. I'm currently 100 plus pounds from goal weight. Would I use my goal weight or current weight? For context, I'm 5'2, I'm a 5'2 female. Current weight is 257 pounds, goal weight is 130 to 140 pounds. History of yo yo diets. Um, I would probably say use your goal weight, but use 12 times your body weight. So the 10 to 12 times your, your body weight works really well. It is a, it's a very generalized estimated caloric intake, but it works. And, and a lot of times what you'll find is like, if you do that calculation and then you do the long-term long form calculation of TDE and blah, 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 and you end up dieting them down and you end up around that point. Um, so it's a good guesstimate. Now, I will say calculating your TDE, actually using a proper formula to figure out what you actually need to create a deficit from, how big of a deficit you need to create, if you even need to create a deficit because sometimes it's just switching macros around, um, I think that way goes better. The more in-depth you can do, the I think the better off people are going to be. Um, 10 to 12 is very generic, but it works um, for a certain amount of time. I would say you would probably go off the higher end of your goal weight. So being it that it is your goal weight, it is going to be a deficit from where you're probably at. Um, And because of that, I would go with the higher amount. However, in any scenario, especially if you're committing to a hundred plus pounds of weight loss, spend the time tracking for a week and find your average caloric intake. Because if you do your goal weight times a hundred or times 12, which is what? Only 1500 calories. So let's average your goal weight to 135 since you said 130 to 140 times 12 is 1620. 1600 calories is pretty low. So let's say this. Let's say right now your average intake, if you would take the time a week to just eat how you're eating, be intuitive, don't try to hit any numbers, don't try to change anything, just eat how you're eating. You're currently eating 2300. That's you creating almost a 7,000 or no, I'm sorry, 7,700 <laughs> That would be an absurd deficit. Do not cut 7,000 calories. Um, that would be a 700-calorie deficit, um, and that's a big deficit. You probably could cut 200 calories and still see results, and it's much more sustainable. So track your current 
macros. If your current macros or calories are around 2,300, let's just use that example. Look at your macros. Is your protein super fucking low? If it is, bring your protein up to where it needs to be, which is probably going to be in, like I would go right dead between your current weight and your goal weight. Put your protein up to there. Now you've just taken your calories and you've completely changed the composition to be much more advantageous to burning fat and not storing fat. So now you can diet on 2,300 calories and lose weight instead of trying to cut down to 1,620 because that's what 10 to 12 times your body weight was, right? Um, or your protein's already high enough. You just cut 250 calories, way better than 700 calories, way more sustainable, way more likely to maintain performance and hormonal function, metabolic function, muscle mass, so on and so forth. Um, so that's that's always going to be my recommendation is track your at av- and find your average first and, and then go with an approach. Now, if you track your average and you're below 10 to 12 times your body weight, now you have to reverse diet and you're probably not even a good place to diet in the first place. So um, that's my best answer for that one. Simron, oh, you guys are killing me with these names. Simron Kapramani. I'm really sorry if I butchered that, honestly. Um, It's a tough one, and it's all in one word, so I could have, like, separated the two names at the wrong time, too. Um, All right. Pregnancy and training. That's all she said. Um, It's great. (laughs) <laughs> I don't, it's hard to direct this question because I don't know what you're really asking me. You're just, you just mentioned pregnancy and training. But, I mean, uh, my thoughts on it would be that it's it's important. I think not enough people prioritize it. It's extremely important for um, a healthy delivery, um, a healthier baby, uh, and a faster rebound after the, the delivery. Um, I've I've had clients who have stopped training with me. Um, because they got pregnant and they came back afterwards. And I've had clients that have trained with me every week up until they are pregnant. Like I had a client that trained with me on Thursday. She had her baby on Saturday, like up until birth. The clients that stay with me through pregnancy have a faster and less painful delivery. They get their body back way faster after birth and their babies are very healthy. Not saying that the people who didn't train during their babies aren't healthy, but I do know that I've seen this time and time again that the delivery seems to be easier and faster with people who train versus people who don't, and it seems that their bodies kind of rebound quicker um, afterwards too because when you get pregnant and you gain all this weight, it's really just pregnancy weight. It's not pregnancy weight and then some. Um, so my opinion on pregnancy training is you should definitely be doing it. You have to be careful with a lot of things. Like You don't want to be doing sit-ups. You don't want to be um, – laying on your stomach and any doing push-ups or anything like that um, obviously um, you want to be careful with overhead pressing or chin-ups or anything reaching your head over or your arms over your head um, anything that goes into uh, spinal extension thoracic exp- extension as well um, and reaching overhead does that and the reason for this is because you're already pressing on your abdominal wall. If you stretch it too much, you can strain the abdominal wall. Um, and you don't want to strain your abs while you're pregnant. It's not a fun thing. Um, so, yeah, I think pregnancy and training is great. I think everybody needs to do it. I think everybody needs to focus on it. Um, you're going to save yourself a lot of uh, pain and a lot of uh, time. And you're going to get back to your body so much quicker if you do it. I think it's such a good thing for people to do. All right. Uh Moe underscore frontline fitness has a few questions. K 
can you recommend any resources for coaches wanting to improve their programming? Um, yeah, number one, obviously, the Boom Boom Elite, our membership site, because uh, you get access to my seminar, you get all my seminars, you get access to some of my ebooks, you get access to me, you get access to my lives, you get access to the webinars and the presentations I have done and other guest speakers have done inside the group, you get access to all my programs. You can learn a ton about programming inside there. Um, I highly recommend the Muscle and Strength Pyramids, both in training and nutrition, but in this case, the training version of that. Um, I like the Maximum Muscle Bible by Christian Thibodeau and Paul Carter. That's another great one. Um, a lot of Renaissance periodization stuff, like the Hypertrophy Guide, is really good by them. It's, it's a free blog, but it goes through every muscle group and teaches you about volume landmarks. I'm trying to think. I recommend the Revive Stronger podcast. Uh, Steve Hall is a good guy. I've had him on here. He, he interviews Mike Isertel a lot, and they go into programming quite a bit. Um, you could even read Practical Programming, Mark Ripito's Starting Strength, like those old books. I think some of the stuff inside of there is outdated and just has been built upon, so you should probably expand your learning on it. But that's something I think just getting opinions of others and hearing how other people do things is really, really helpful. Um, OPEX has a lot of good stuff on more like CrossFit based work and, uh, more like sports specific to functional fitness. Uh, but again, it's, it's a different approach and it helps to learn from different people. But I think those would be the best recommendations I have. Lots of podcasts and, and those books specifically. Also adding to that, what's the best program to use for programming clients? Um, oh, example. Oh, okay, so he he has two questions. The third question is the example thing. I did the story thing. You know, the story thing, you put uh, the question bar. You can only put so many characters in there. So also adding that, what's the best program to use for programming clients? Example would be Excel slash Google Sheets. I use Google Sheets at the moment, but I think there might be better uh, ones out there. Um, I like Google Sheets. Um, I use, I mean, I use a, a wide variety of things. I use Google Docs. I use Google Sheets. I convert things into PDFs. Um, that's just how I do things. You know, for me, like it all started on paper. I just journaled my thoughts. I journaled my programs, um, and then I type them up. And then I created templates. I created tables. I created formulas, and it's just kind of adapted over time. I personally find that having my own system works best. So, I have my own templates, tables, Excel sheets, formulas, um, PDFs converted all together. They work really well for me because they are my system. They work how I work. They have my exercises in there. They have they, they're programmed the way I like to program. They include RPE and rest periods and sets and notes and cues and things like that. Um, and it just works best for me. I don't like no hard – like I think it's a smart business plan. I don't like – but I don't like things like Trainerize or, or apps like that because I think it takes away from the art of coaching. I think being a really good programmer means that you know how to program. It, it doesn't mean that you download an app or a computer software program that allows you to pull from other people's ideas and use other people's templates in order to create something. Um, so that's just my opinion. I, I, I go with the, the, the Excel sheets, the Google sheets, the stuff like that because I just think it allows me to have full reign over like my creativity inside of a program. Do you ever add in – this is from K underscore Eastman. Do you ever add in, say, 25 to 50 carb refeeds even when in a maintenance phase? Sometimes feel run down after a few weeks or added activity level and need a boost. 
Huh. So, do you ever add? I need to start figuring that either Instagram needs to allow these to have more characters, or I got to figure out a different way to do this because sometimes it's hard to put these together. Do you ever add in, say, 25 to 50 grams of carbs refeeds, even when in a maintenance phase? Sometimes I feel run down after a few weeks added um, of activity. I'm Ah, okay, I got it. I apologize, guys. I probably sound so dumb right now trying to read this. It's <laughs> sometimes I, I do me a favor. Everybody who asks questions, grammar and vocab is key because it allows me to read it properly and as you want it to. So make sure you double check your writing and you, and you really read through it because the, otherwise I, I sound stupid. Sorry. Do you ever add in, say, 25 to 50 grams on a refeed even when in a maintenance phase? Sometimes I feel run down after a few weeks or I have added activity level um, and I just need a boost. So I think it depends. Like um, I do not add 25 to 50 carb refeeds. I don't even add refeeds in a maintenance phase because the goal of a maintenance phase is to bring calories up to maintenance. You shouldn't feel run down or under-recovered if you're at maintenance. If you are feeling run down, then either A, you're, you didn't bring your calories up to maintenance, or B, the added activity levels that you mentioned took you out of maintenance. So you created a new deficit by adding more activity. So yes, if your activity changes week to week, constantly and you're really focused on feeling good and having energy and staying in maintenance, then yeah, if you know you're definitely going to add activity this week, you can add in extra carbs to make do for that. So your calories are a little bit higher and more true to maintenance. But if you're just in a maintenance phase, um, you shouldn't need refeeds. If you feel as if you need refeeds, you should probably just add carbs or, uh, to your total macro intake regardless. Just bring your calories up. Um, is it possible, this is from Nikki underscore Ross, is it possible to diet successfully when life stress is high, i.e. grad school work? Um, yeah, it is possible, but it's hard. I, I think that what people fail to realize is that stress is stress. So emotional stress, relationship stress, work stress, school stress, training stress, dietary stress, because when you're in a deficit, that is a stress. Fasting, if you're doing intermittent fasting, that's a stress. Anything that produces stress in your life, be that good things or bad, like grad school is a good thing, but it's causing stress, right? Work for me is a great thing. It still causes stress. Family for me is a great thing. It still causes stress. So I have to be aware of all these stresses and understand when to diet, when not to diet. Um, and sometimes that means pausing on things until you get more confident that you can uh, diet or that you can manage your stress. So slowly adding things in to help you recover from that stress before you go into a deficit can be very, very key. But as a whole, I don't think there's anything wrong with it um, as long as you can manage it. Uh, otherwise, it's just a periodization thing. Pause, wait, come back to the diet when your stress lowers. Um, and and if, what I like to do with people is like let's look at the year. When is high stress? When is low stress? I was actually just having this conversation today with an individual, one of my clients. The summers are crazy for her. She has way too much going on. Stress gets higher. Travel goes up. Work goes up. Like Everything gets more stressful from June to August. So we're purposely putting in a two-month maintenance phase, all, almost all of June, all of July, the beginning of August, and then we'll go back to a cut in August. So we're going to reverse diet her, keep her at maintenance, and then bring her back into a cut when she's ready and stress comes down. And this was a really good insight of awareness on her part because she emailed me and said, hey, this is what I'm thinking. 
Summer's about to happen. It's about to get crazy. I'm about to have a lot of stress. Should we possibly move into a maintenance phase and pause fat loss until I'm ready to push hard again when I won't have as much stress? My answer was yes. But I think that's a really, really self-aware person. I think that's going to be a really successful approach because she is fully aware of of the stress taking over her ability to make progress. When stress is high, your ability to adhere to a diet goes down. Your inhibition goes up, right? So your inhibition goes down. So you are going to have more cravings. You're going to have more hunger. You're going to have less self-discipline. You're going to have less motivation at the gym, right? It's going to be hard and the diet adds stress. So is it possible? Absolutely. Um, There's no reason why it's not possible. Many people diet through stress. Um, if you have a goal that is a strong enough motive to get you through it. But I do think it's smart to periodize things and wait for a less stressful time. Ja la 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 321 said, what's the lowest calories you've ever needed to cut a female client for fat loss? That's a really good question. Um, I would say... I think the lowest I've ever brought somebody is probably around 1,100. Yeah, probably 1,100. I don't think I've ever gone below 1,000. That's for damn sure. Um, And this is for a small female bikini competitor. The person I'm thinking about, I think they got on stage at like 113 pounds. Um, So short, petite bikini competitor, so extreme uh, goal. And we had to bring them down to about 1,100. So some people you do need to bring down calories. We reverse dieted them out of that. They obviously didn't maintain the level of leanness that they had. Um, but we had to do what we had to do. I think a lot of people with this whole like um, reverse dieting movement and, and dieting on as many calories as possible, like yes, that is the goal. But we can't take that out of context. We can't take that out of hand. Um, a lot of people just go too far with it uh, and expect to be losing calories on – a ton of carbs, a ton of calories, or sorry, losing weight on a ton of carbs, a ton of calories. And that's just not always the reality. You do need to cut people sometimes. And some people's bodies are stubborn than others. Um, And there's been plenty of times where I've been like, fuck, I don't want to bring you down this low, but this is the only way to get your goal. We're going to have to really focus on adherence and then bring you back up once we get there. So yeah, there's there's definitely a time for it. Um, Let's see. I'm going back to the other Facebook group because there's more questions in here. All right. Brian Matney. Just listened to this episode this morning during my cardio session. Another great Q&A. He's talking about the last one. You talked about Berberin and getting a quality brand. Any recommended recommendations on brands? Um, yeah, so I, I recommended the... Amazon or amazing formulas berberin just because it's third-party tested and I think it's really important guys like when you're looking into supplementation do your research on uh, examine.com do your research on labdoor.com if it is there Um, once you understand why you would take the supplement from examine go over to labdoor and see if it's a verified supplement if they don't have that category for example berberin isn't on labdoor um, as a category but protein powder amino acids creatine things like that more mainstream supplements are Go look and see if they're highly qualified. See if they're actually full of what they say they're full of rather than it being cut or spiked or or having any issues with containing the actual ingredients it says it contains, the the actual dosage that it says it has. Um, I think that's really important for people to do. Um, For Berberin, I think that's a good brand because it's third-party tested. Third-party testing is a really 
uh, a good thing that people want to look out for because it just shows that it's gone through probably the highest level of testing and qualification that it can possibly go through to make sure that it is what it says it is. All right, this will be the last question for today. Rhiannon Healy, can you lose fat at maintenance calories using training to create a deficit? Lean out without dropping calories. Absolutely. Um, There's been plenty of times that I've done that um, with people because they'll come on board and they are not training super hard. They're not training very often. They're not training at all. Cool. Let's add calories, get you to maintenance level. Let's make you feel good. And then let's add a couple days of training. Then let's add three. Then let's add four. Like get them up to a high level of strength training. Um, Add some cardio in there. Same thing. Caloric deficit is a caloric deficit. It doesn't really matter if you do it from food or cardio or training. All that matters is that you do it and that's what's going to lead to weight loss. The problem with creating a deficit through training is that it's more neurologically taxing. It takes more of your time um, and it can be just more difficult to adjust and add along the way. Calories are easier to manipulate. Macros are easier to manipulate training you can only do so much and still feel good and still be healthy so the more you to add in there the more you're going to be taxed the more tired you're going to be the harder it is going to be to consistently adhere to it um, and you're very likely to fall off you're just very likely to not be able to consistently do what you want to do with the diet um, so i always go with calories first if i can but is it possible absolutely You can absolutely create a deficit through training or any type of physical activity, and that can be the way you lose weight by creating a caloric deficit. Um, So there's a lot of ways to do it. Um, But yeah, in my opinion, I think the best strategy is going with nutrition and very little activity. Um, But as you get further in a diet, you have to make an adjustment based on adherence. So if we get to a point where I say, hey, what would be easier for you to adhere to over the course of the next six months or three months or even four weeks? adding a little bit of cardio or pouring, pulling more calories. And if you tell me that like you don't want to pull calories because it's hard as it is to eat this many because we're already in a deficit, then we're going to add cardio. It's an adherence thing. Both can be done. Calories are usually more effective, but adherence is the big key.